Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. We are getting straight back into our conversation today with Vera Lee. Now, this is part two of the conversation. And so if you haven't already listened to part one, please go out and listen to that. It gives you a good introduction into what we're going to be discussing in part two. But for now, let's just get straight back into where we were. The second thing for me in realizing that he was doing this, this was going to keep happening. This was another escalation. Yeah. And what the hell was I going to do now? And no matter your cries, whether they're there or not, your consent, whether they're there or not, is not being respected in any way. And, in fact, yeah, you're right, it's escalating, it's getting more painful. And for him to do that, you've screamed out you're in pain, and for him to go back and do it again, knowing that that was hurting you, is yeah. violent and sadistic and that must have been so terrifying for you in that moment. And, you know, for anybody who's ever had any, even any cuts or anything from sex, you know how uncomfortable that can be for days afterwards. Like yeah. I'm so sorry because that impacts your life for so much longer than the duration of the abuse as well, the physical effects of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I still have anal fissures from it. They're never going to heal. Yeah. So he's damaged me permanently from that one act and then from repeating that act many other times. And so I live with those scars. And to, to, for people to understand how this affects somebody on that deeper level, I said there were two things that happened. The first one was that I realised that he was intending and did this purposefully, knowing yeah that knowing how wrong and and what state I was in and what state he'd put me in literally the first time and the pain and what damage he was doing, he knew. And that's when I became aware that he knew. The second thing was that was the first time that I separated from myself in order to get through that experience. 
because yeah. the pain was so bad. I just couldn't be there. And so that was the first time I disassociated. And that for me was probably one of the most longest lasting effects for me as a person, as a human being in knowing who I was, because at that point, this, I explained to people, this was the first time I lost my voice. I couldn't make any sound other than crying on that toilet for hours. I couldn't make any sound for days and days and days. I couldn't talk to anybody. And in fact, I never spoke about that moment verbally until I went through a domestic violence support group, until I started allowing these events to unfold in artworks that I created that were telling my story without me having to verbalise it. And then I finally got the courage because I was in a safe space. I was around women who understood because they'd gone through it too. I was around counsellors that were there to help and support me. At that point, I'd started going through my cars of counselling for the sexual assault stuff. And so I started to let this story come out and then I started to allow it to come out in words in a written form and so I wrote poetry and I combined the artwork with the poetry and so my story was being told very very powerfully and yet I still wasn't able to verbalize it until much later which was a whole journey itself because that that moment was just so huge it was like the pivotal moment Absolutely. And it is so powerful hearing you say it now. And my body's tingling because I I can put myself into the shoes of somebody who's going through that much pain physically and mentally. And and it's so incredible to hear you say it. And this is the reason why we speak out about it as well is to break down the barriers of talking about these things, especially when we're talking about something like anal penetration you know, it's something that we often don't talk about. We, you know, sodomy is untouched in a certain way. And even within the realms, I guess, of sexual perpetrators, you know, for example, uh, people who are child molesters will be happy to say that they did it vaginally, but saying, because it's just an, it's, it's an area that shows a level of sadism. It's a level that shows that person's lack of care. And it's also embarrassing as well to a degree, more so than being vaginally raped. And I think that it's incredible that you're speaking about it because how many people are listening to this right now have been through that same thing or something similar and are feeling so much shame and hate for themselves because they were put through this by somebody else. Yeah, and this is what I learned when I was going through those support groups around other women. I, again, I was an observer and so I was used to observing other people. What I wasn't used to was other people observing me in a way that they were feeling inspired and empowered from observing me go through my process. And so that was a really new thing for me. Not the fact that I could inspire people because I'd done that, not not blowing my horn or anything, but I'd done that throughout my life in many different ways. But when it came to something that was so important, you know, and being violated on this level, the fact that I still couldn't speak those words and yet my artwork and my poetry was telling these women's stories too. 
you know, that they couldn't talk about either and that they didn't know how to deal with either. And so what I started learning was that, well, the reason that I didn't know how to speak about this, the reason that I lost my voice about this was because nobody's fucking talking about it because everyone's feeling the same thing. You know, I'm ashamed to talk about this. That's what happened. You know, I I remember I was pregnant. I was in the hospital because I had gallstones. I was not in a good state. I spent more time in hospital throughout that pregnancy than out of it. My husband had come in to do his obligatory visit and demanded that I have sex with him there in the hospital bed because all the nurses probably won't be back for 10 minutes. I'm in hospital for a reason. I'm at that point, I was, I think, 20 weeks pregnant. I had gallstones. I was in severe pain and I was bleeding anally because he had raped me again recently. And I remember the nurse came in, thank God. And, and mind you, this wasn't in a single bed ward either. So there are other people around. And I remember the nurse came in and, and gave me the opportunity to go to the toilet. I went to the toilet and there was blood all in the toilet bowl. And I called the nurse because I thought in my mind somehow here's an opportunity. If she sees this, she's going to know. Yeah, She's going to know what's happened to me. And I still couldn't say the words. And so I said, look look and I was pointing to the bowl she said do you have hemorrhoids I said no no I don't she goes well are you constipated I said no no I'm not I said but look there's a lot of blood there and she said well let me check you she said it looks like you've got a tear it could be because of constipation I said I'm never constipated ever. Yeah. She didn't she didn't get my subtlety. <laughs> and you know, that was one of those moments and I think people who go through this stuff, they have these moments. That was one of those moments where it was like, why didn't you just say something? You know, this is what people will say, but why didn't you just say he raped me? You fucking try saying that to a stranger. Because are they going to believe you? And everything that's around that nobody talks about this, and how am I going to be treated actually saying that? You know, so there is just so much more around these issues. And, yes, this is why you have your podcast. This is why I have my podcast. This is why when I did find my voice and start reading my poetry and start speaking about my experiences, I used to be invited to all sorts of local stages to talk, to share, because I was one of those few people that was sharing openly about what happened. Absolutely. we need this. Absolutely. And people will say, like, what what could that nurse have done differently? And, you know, I think this is where victim survivors need to come to the forefront and talk about these things more often because in the simple act of her saying something like, is there something else that could be causing this bleeding that you're aware of? You might've just nodded your head. Is that something that you would like to discuss with me right now? No. Could that lead to her asking you in danger or something like that? And it's not to say she didn't do her job. 
it's to no. say she could have done her job better with training. And she may not have known. Yeah, yep. exactly. And I think from the victim side of things as well, this is a nurse. Mm-hmm. My partner is outside who is a huge man who has controlled me for a very long period of time. What the fuck is she going to be able to do in this situation to help me? And, yep. you know, it's one of those things, but I also think for you that must have been quite a pivotal point in nearly saying something. You're edging towards that in a way. Yeah. You're tip, tipping your toe in the water kind of and testing it out and starting to edge towards seeking some help for what you're going through and the terrible abuse that you're enduring every single day. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It was. And I actually did recognize it at that time. Unfortunately for me, I was physically exhausted. I was in a really poor physical state because of the gallstones, because of the pregnancy, um, you know, because of all that stuff. And then that was on top of the normal day to day, you know. You must have just been in so much pain every day. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And unfortunately, the pain became the normal too. And so, again, you know, coming out of it, it was really, it was really quite an amazing experience. And I use that word deliberately. Again, I'm all about seeing opportunities through things. And most people say there's no fucking opportunity from being raped. No, there's not from the act. No, there is from when you have been able to leave that situation, when you've been able to look at your own personal development, when you've been able to start learning that you can help other women possibly to avoid them staying as long or or not understanding how wrong all of this stuff is or not understanding how they might be able to ask for somebody from for help without them finding without the other finding out. I mean there is just so many things in there. There was opportunity for me to help people. There was opportunity for me to learn more about myself. And there was opportunity for me at that time to say something and I didn't. And sometimes we just need to do things a little bit like practice. We sort of, like you said, dip the toe in the water. It's like tried it here, didn't quite get there. I'll do a bit better next time, you know. And the thing was it was pivotal for me because then I started looking. I started looking for ways that I could possibly see a way out because I was pregnant <laughs> and I was like, how am I going to bring a baby into this? Yeah, No fucking absolutely. way. I did. He was about five, six months old before I could leave and there was a lot of damage done in that time yep. for both of us, but I was able to leave and that's the big thing. That's the important thing. Absolutely. And did anything change after your son was born? Was there something like, did it get worse? Was there any reprieve after your childbirth or what was that like for you? Yeah, really good questions actually because sometimes sometimes the abuse can stall, it can slow, it can get better, you can get back into that honeymoon phase after you've had a baby and stuff like that. That was not my experience. I was in the other group who it escalated. So all of a sudden I'd had an emergency cesarean birth. So they nearly lost both of us at the birth. And so I I actually woke up three days later after giving birth to my child to meet him for the first time. 
and was discharged a couple of days after that, sent home, still had gallstones that they couldn't take out because I'd lost too much blood through the operation. So I was having a gallstone attack one night with the baby on my breast, breastfeeding him, and my husband complaining that he still couldn't have sex with me and that I'd better shut up and finish feeding the baby and um, put him away so that he could have sex with me. And I'm having a gallstone attack at the same time. Now, for anyone who's had gallstones, I'll understand the severe pain of those themselves. I was in the unfortunate situation where when I was going through third stage labour, I was having gallstone attacks. And for me, that pain was worse than third stage labour. So I think that says something. So I'm at home sitting there telling him to ring the the hospital because I need to take an ambulance to the hospital because this gallstone attack's bad. I've got this child on my bed that I'm trying to feed at the same time and he's my husband lounging next to me in bed saying, fucking get rid of the child and let me fuck you and I'm not ringing an ambulance. It's just such a callous disregard for even your physical safety, your yeah. even your child's safety. Like yeah. the feeding of your child doesn't even come before the abuse that you're enduring. Um, yeah. It goes to show his complete narcissism and lack of care for anybody else other than himself. Yeah. And it's quite think- sadistic as well, which is quite scary. Oh. It's almost like he's getting turned on while you're in agony and in pain and they they are the most dangerous types of offenders. Nobody can really think or relate to being turned on by somebody in agony and screaming in pain. And for that mm. to happen is terrifying. Mm. And I don't remember if he did it on that particular occasion, but so often he would laugh at me when I was in severe pain, you know, and then mock me. And it just, there was just so much shit under there. And this is where I say, you know, the, 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 journey of discovering really who you are of peeling off all of those layers of bullshit that got put in there right peeling off all of that if I have sex with you and I'm going to force you to have sex with me and then I'm going to go and run into the bathroom and pretend to dry reach and then come back and tell you that the person I've just forced to have sex with that you're making me throw up because you're so disgusting you know, like when these are all of the things that you get told day in, day out, you almost start to believe it. And so you've got to learn how to peel that shit off. You've got to learn how to get rid of it and then get back to who you are, get back to the bare bones of who you are, truly are, to yeah. then start building in your own layers of love, hope, connection, empowerment, you know, all that good stuff that we come into this world with and it's only other people that are stripping it away. And so it really is reclaiming our own identity. It's reclaiming our own sense of who we are. It's reclaiming our own boundaries and saying, I am never going to let somebody step over my boundaries, those important boundaries like that ever again. Yeah, it takes a lot of strength and courage to get there and it is worth it and you are worth it. We are all worth it. And I think, you know, to put it into perspective for somebody, like if you were to post a picture on Instagram and one person was to comment saying you look fat or you look ugly or you look worthless, 
how much that would impact their day in life. And to have that as something that is told to you day in, day out, not only through the verbal communication, but through their actions, um, physically, sexually, all of these things consistently, for you to go through that and endure that for such a long period of time and to be able to save yourself and your son from this situation and also to be able to get to a point where you look at yourself in the mirror and you can tell yourself that you love yourself is an incredible testament to your courage and your tenacity and your ability to fucking work your ass off because to peel all of those things back and get to a point where you can say, I love Vera Lee in the mirror to yourself is just an incredible feat in and of itself. And I, I can't, I can't be more inspired by the, what you're saying. And it, I'm heartbroken that you've had to go through this. And I'm somebody who has polycystic ovaries. I have had multiple cysts burst on my ovaries. One of them actually ruptured my ovary. And that was the most worst pain I've ever been through in my life. And it was sustained for quite a period of time until the ambulance got there and I got morphine, et cetera. Mm. And if I can say that was the sustained most worst pain in my life to flip that and think about the moment that you're going through labor, childbirth labor, and you've got a gallstone attack that's worse pain than that. Like a reprieve for you would be a contraction. Mm. It goes to show the level that your body is adept at dealing with and managing pain. And that is just, it's just horrific. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. Thank you. I'm sorry I had to go through it too on a number of levels, I did go through it and I can't change that. (laughs) I can't change the past. And so what I do is I look for what can be used from those experiences to help others. I look for what can be used in those experiences to help me, to help me be a better mum to my son so that he doesn't turn out the same as his father, you know, and that society can hear stories Uh, and the most difficult thing for me as somebody who's gone through this I used to have a lot of people when I would speak that would come up to me always tears running down their faces and say to me oh thank you so much for sharing like you just I needed to hear that today the other thing that would happen is so many times I would say what you went through was so much worse than what I went through And I used to say, we all have our own experiences. It's not about comparing them. What I went through was what I went through. What you've gone through and what someone else is going to go through is equally as hard for them in the moment. And so it's never about, oh, it was so bad for me. The only reason I tell some of the things of what it was like is so that people can grasp the concept and so that those people who've gone through it too and don't have a voice still can have somebody speaking their truth, you know. And so that's what it's about more so than comparing. And so I often have that talk with those people and say, tell me about your story. Let's honour your story. And I always say everyone has a story if we're willing to listen because we all do have stories that need to be told. 
And I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I had the same thing with my sexual violence story where people were like, yours is so much worse than mine. And it's like, that's not, it's not a badge of honor that people really want. And it's no. not a comparison. We're talking here about trauma and healing. And, you know, if something has happened and it's traumatized you, then something's happened and it's traumatized you. It's not a competition over here about who's gone through the worst and who is now okay. What those people show from everybody that speaks through all of the things that they've endured is from as perceived as small as it is and as perceived as large as it is, as it is, is is that there is life after abuse and that's not scalable, but there is life after abuse. And I think, you know, we need to get better as a society of calling that out. And, you know, for anybody listening to this, you're, it is bad enough to warrant going to seeking help and to warrant, you know, reaching out and to warrant telling your story if that's something that you are wanting to do. Mm, Yes, and that it's your choice to do that and it's also your choice to do it in what form you choose to do it. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my form was artwork and still is and that's one of the ways that I discovered through that process that I actually could get out stuff that have physically happened to my body through a physical process. For me, that made sense. I'm yeah. like, well, this this stuff happened to my body, not just my mind, not just my emotions. It actually happened to my body. And some of the worst pain was actually physical pain. And so for me, it's always been really important to use a physical side of creating artwork to actually work through those emotions. Yeah. It means I have to sit with those emotions to be able to do it. Again, I've also learned that if I'm in a safe space, if I have the right support around me, then allowing my body to feel those emotions and put it into something can turn what's ugly and what feels disgusting to me into something that's absolutely amazing and beautiful. Absolutely. And, I mean, that's transformational, you know, and it was for me and it it was for so many people that saw my work. There were places um, that wouldn't exhibit my work with the rest of the group because it was too confronting. Yeah. You know, they didn't want to upset patrons. Well, I'm sorry, this fucking upset me. And it's upsetting probably a certain percentage of your patrons that don't have a voice that seeing that work might actually help them to go, I, I've got somewhere to go and ask for help. Absolutely. And it's it's weird that people do that specifically with art because, when did we get this censored? You know, Frida Kahlo had so many pieces of work that showed the trauma that she went through and they were very graphic paintings and she's one of the most revered and famous painters of all time. She's been re, she's now re-famous. She's on everything. She's like a cult hero. And yeah. when, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. when did art become something that we could censor? And, but I think you're right. And I think in the sense that we say this, and I've spoken to so many survivors on this, like um, journaling and um, one of the guys, Jeremy, that was on here recently, he went and spoke about his story at open mic nights. And there are so many different ways that people are finding healing for themselves in different formats and different avenues. And whether it's, you know, when I was going through the thick of mine, I would write songs. And I'm not a musical player at all, but (laughs) what I loved in the act of writing a song was I would instantly in my mind filter out the things that weren't mattering to me as much. And I'd focus on a lot of things like the relationship with my mum. 
And that was something that I would write about more so than I would the the abuse because they were things that were really, really hurting me at the time. And I think whatever format it might be, physical or not, writing, journaling, affirmations, just try them because they are so transformative when you find something that works for you. You're right. It's you get this sense of you feel it almost leaving your chest, you know, Mm. And like you take a deep breath in and out and all of a sudden you weigh five kilos less. <laughs> yeah. And, and like something as simple as coloring in, for example, that was one of the first tasks that we did in that support group. And more than half of the room wasn't picking up any of the materials to start coloring in. They just didn't know what to do because all of a sudden they're in this space where conversation was starting to talk about all this really difficult, scary sort of stuff that none of us had verbalized up until that point in time. Well, where's the correlation between coloring in and, you know, linking it up with the trauma? Well, the thing is coloring in often makes people feel like it's a childish activity. And if they had childhood trauma, that can trigger that sometimes. On another level, and this is what I learned again through this process, intuitively, what colours do you go for? Well, the people that were still in the darkest places went for all the dark colours, you know, and the people who were starting to work through things, then they had maybe some red for anger, you know, because a big part of what our journey was was learning to go, I can feel angry and I should feel angry and I will feel angry And I will allow myself to feel this. And I will go and grab a pillow if I'm worried about the neighbours and I will scream into a fucking pillow, but I need to scream because I need to get this out, you know. And we did a lot of felt work and it was grab that felt and you throw it against the wall and you do it again, you do it again. So it was all this physical way that we could get out a lot of these emotions. So choosing colours and learning what does red mean to me in this moment? What am I associating with red? Am I associating blood from that event? Am I associating anger? Am I associating danger like a red back spider? Like there's all these different things that red could mean to me in that moment. And so it was, again, becoming more in tune with who I was and what I was feeling without actually thinking about what colour am I going to choose. And that was an important part of it. Just grab whatever you feel drawn to. Don't think about it. Just grab it and start using it. And and different types of uh, materials, grab a pastel or see what that feels like. And what I learned through that process was I got back a part of me that I'd lost which was my creativity, which was my artistic side. And I'd never called myself an artist until I went through this process. And then I realized, damn it, I am an artist. Look at the amazing work that I create. Look at how I inspire other people and look at how when they look at these pieces of work, the ones about trauma and the ones that are not about trauma, how they, even if they don't know the story behind it, always go, this is making me feel like, and it might be uncomfortable, it might be anxious it might be really happy and it starts that conversation what are you feeling why do you think you're feeling that right now 
what is it about this piece of work that is invoking that feeling? And again, you know, to come back to your question, when did we censor art? Uncensored art is going to create uncensored conversation. And that's where we need to get to. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And art is not only there to invoke happy feelings. You know, art is there as an expression of feelings and feelings are not always happy. And that's something that we can't curate. You know, you've got to be able to present things as they are. That's what it's there for. But I think even just the act of doing the art and being able to do that and not feel lame, you know, people would laugh at me for the songwriting. You're not a singer. I'm like, I'm not a fucking singer. You don't have to be a singer to write a song. Like you can, (laughs) and you don't have to be good at singing to enjoy singing either. (laughs) Like it's, you you can be an artist and be a crap one. You're still an artist. You're still creating art. Like there's not, you're not, it's just weird that people don't, you, the act of needing to be perfect at something trumps the fact that it's actually fun for you to do. Like Mm. that Mm. kills me. Yeah. And see there again, like, and I think you'll be okay with me saying this, like, you know, that need to be perfect. What is perfect? Like mm. there actually isn't a perfect anyway. No, And it's so arbitrary. it's like, yeah, it is arbitrary. And it's like, yeah, I might be a crap artist. And I was, when, when I was doing all that stuff, most of my art was stick figures. It was scribbles on paper. You know, it was just pure shapes with colour, uh, upon colour, upon colour. I started taking photos of my husband and I started deliberately deteriorating the photo upon photo upon photo upon photo until what was left had actually transformed into just colours and shapes. And then I would start to work into layer upon layer all this detail and all this interesting stuff and beauty. And that, I realised, was the process that I was doing with myself through healing. Yeah. That was the journey I was going through. And so, again, this this was an opportunity to put all the crap out there, all the crap that I'd gone through, put it out there, get get it out of you, yeah. you know, put it out there and share it so other people can go, yeah, I feel that fucking crap too. I really do, you know. Yeah. Because when you've gone through this shit, you need, not want, because you don't want to hear about other people's stories really, but you need to hear other people's stories because you need to know that this shit happens and you need to know that what happened to you is validated. You need to know that your emotions are validated, that what happened was wrong and that people believe you. And that it wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault and you are worthy. Even though you feel damaged and broken at this point in time, you are worthy. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, But to go back as well, if I may, um, after your son was born and you realised that you needed to leave and everything, what was your journey like leaving? Um, How did you go about Mm. leaving? And, you know, we know statistically speaking, leaving is the most dangerous time. What was it like for you navigating that at that time? Mm. I think it's important to note that I'd already tried to leave twice. Once was before I was married with my dog in tow because he was also physically abusing my dog. And I had forgotten about that until it came up in conversation with my dad many years after I'd left my husband. There was another time I tried to leave and my husband 
basically said that he would kill himself if I left and I believed him. And I believed him when he said that it would be on my responsibility if he killed himself because I left him. And I know now that that was never my responsibility. I could not be held accountable for that. But at the time, I thought that that was the case. And so when I got to the point where I realized I needed to leave, I'd already tried twice. So we go back to that. Sometimes you've got to try things and have it not work and practice and work out a way that it can work. Work up different ways of thinking, well, okay, that didn't work, so how can I make it work? Now, I happened to be seeing a psychologist at that time who was technically dealing with my depression, but actually she was trying to help me through the domestic violence side of things. Wasn't doing a particularly great job. However, we'll put that aside and we'll just say that a couple of things that she did say which were really great was you need to have an emergency bag packed and you need to think about where you can go when you leave and then you need to go straight to the police when you're actually ready to do this. And the biggest thing was he took my car to work every day and so I didn't have a car. So it wasn't like I could just leave. And so he came home one day as normal, came home from his split shift, stripped off, went and sat on the couch and I'd had some time to really think about it. Um, There was an incident that had occurred before that shift, before he went to work, that precipitated me going today's the day and I actually I actually wrote an article for somebody about it and I read this article and it became a podcast episode because when I wrote the article and then I read those words out aloud I was like oh man I don't think I've ever actually verbalized that moment before and that was the moment when I decided I'm actually leaving Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I can't do this anymore. And that moment was he had 
um, he was actually, he'd either come home, I can't remember right this second, but he'd either come home from work or he was leaving to go to work. And he was wearing a white shirt and something insignificant had happened in the kitchen. I don't know, he wasn't happy about something. Can't even remember. It was so insignificant. I can't even remember what it was. And he was in this rage and I could see, I'd never seen his eyes that dark before. I'd never seen him look at me and not be there before. Like there was always malice. There was always fear. There was always anxiety. There was always paranoia. There was always violence. There was always something. This particular time there was nothing. Yeah. I was like, you're not human. Like there was just something really wrong and off here. Just and I was blind sitting rage. On, just, yeah, but like I just I couldn't feel anything from him. Like when I looked at him and I'm like, something's really different here. Like I just, I don't yeah. know what it is. And his normal routine, and like I was sitting on the floor with my very young baby and, and I had my dog there. And because he'd been abusing my dog, usually he, he used to wear big steel toe cap boots and he would kick the dog out the back door and the second he walked in the door the dog pissed himself because he knew what was coming yeah and my heart sank and I'm sitting there with my son and I'm like oh shit it's happening you know because it happened all the time but I'm like shit and I couldn't do a damn thing to stop it and he come in and he's carrying on about the dog and he kicked the dog out the door and I'm sitting there and I'm numb I'm shaking I'm like fuck what am I bracing us for you know I've got my child in my arms and I remember yelling at him for kicking the dog which I always did even though it was futile I always did it and I yelled at him and this time he turned around and his eyes were wild so it wasn't like there was nothing there anymore now there was complete rage yeah wild eyes he was shaking and he's a huge man ripped his shirt off his body literally ripped it off as he started coming towards us, grabbed the arm out and he swiped with all of his force and he missed us, me holding this little five, six-month-old baby, missed us by a centimetre and I couldn't move. I was so frozen in fear. I couldn't move. I saw the whole thing happening and coming and I couldn't do a damn thing about it and I felt that wind go past And I just, I know I was holding my breath and I know I just went, oh, next time he's going to make contact. My child is going to end up against a fucking wall and dead and I'll be next. Yeah. And I said, this is it. This is the time my motherhood instinct kicked in. I said, there is no way that you are going to do that to my child. And... I sat there in silence. All of this was going through my head and I still couldn't move. And I was sitting there and I'm like, how am I going to do this? I know I've already got the emergency bag packed. I've already got plans of where I'm going to go, but how am I going to make the excuse to leave right in this moment? And so remembering that I had a psychologist, I made up that I had an appointment with her and that I'd forgotten about it, and I'd better get Blake and I ready to go. Blake's my son. Yeah. And so I very calmly, don't know how I did it again, survival mode can do wonderful things sometimes, very calmly explained that I had this meeting, I'd better grab the keys, please give them to me, I need to get to my meeting, why are you taking Blake? Um, well, uh, 
because I have to feed him and something rather and something rather else. No, leave him here. No, 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 I have to, and I can't even remember what I ended up coming up with, but I had some excuse to come up, no, no, I need to take him myself. And then I had to get the emergency bag without him looking. Thankfully, he'd gone down into the other bathroom to go and smoke his drugs. And so I got that bag out and then I got the child in the car and off we went straight to take my son to my parents' house to leave the bag with them, went straight to the police station. still remember the police sergeant's name. I can still see it on the card he gave me. And I explained the situation to him. I said, I'm leaving this man right now. I live 10 minutes down the road. I'm leaving this man. And he looked at me and he said, okay, what do you want me to do about it? And I said, well, um, I'm leaving this man. I already have my child at my parents' house. I don't know what he's going to do, but I have to confront him and tell him that I'm leaving. Okay, he writes down on his card his name, and I won't say it because I'm not going to name names here. Again, this could have been simply that this person didn't understand, wasn't trained well enough, whatever it might be. Wrote it down, senior constable. Here you go. I'd suggest that um, after the long weekend, which was four days away at that point in time, that you give the courts a call and you ask for a um, uh, not restraining order. What's the other one? Intervention order. Intervention order, thank you. It's been a while. Ask uh, ask for an IO after that uh, long weekend and uh, they'll get it all sorted for you. And I remember breathing and saying, right, so here is my address. In 10 minutes' time when I go and confront this guy and you get a phone call of somebody who can't speak on the other end of the line, you'll know where to fucking come and get my dead body. And then I left and I went to confront my husband. And that was interesting. That created almost naked man in undies running out to my car after I told him that it was all over and I was never, ever going to let him get that close to my child again, trying to smash the windows of my car, running down the estate with everybody looking. It really would have been quite comical if you put it in some sort of, you know, humorous movie, but it wasn't. This was my real life. And this ape of a man was running, trying to smash down my car as I'm trying to drive away to save both of us. So, yes, there's an awful lot I know we could talk about there. Um, but that's in a snapshot how that happened. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you left. And there's a few things I want to touch on. There's this woman I talk about all the time. She, her name's Laura Richards. She's spearheaded in the UK. A, um, it's called the Dash. It's a domestic abuse, stalking, um, harassment, and honour-based violence risk assessment checklist. And it is, this is specifically created for police officers. I think it's police and probation specifically to use as a checklist for situations exactly like this to assess the risk of harm and further harm to the person. One of those questions is, has this person harmed any animals inside the house? Because we all know how much we love our animals. And for somebody to be able to do that, that is a huge indicator of violence. So that's one of them. 
Okay. And there was another few things that you had said throughout that, that were huge indicators that this man may hurt you or harm you and your child more. And for the police response, and I don't, I don't accept that the training isn't there with domestic violence and the the prevalence of this being so well known, the response needs to be better. They can't just assume. They need to ask you the questions. You know, these are the things that we have in place. Maybe we can do a risk assessment. Can we get somebody else out there? Why are you, or even ask, why are you so fearful to go back? Hmm. Gives you the opportunity to feel safe and believed in that moment and maybe open up and let them know what's happening. When you're instantly in a point where what just calls back in four days, well, I'll be probably dead by then. So that's not really going to help me. Thank you very much. And yeah. I think it, 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 I just find it unbelievable to a sense that I am a person that is a lay person. And even in that situation, I would have bought this one piece of paper out and listened to what you had to say ticked all of these boxes and been able to evidentiary with evidence show somebody that this person poses you a threat and an intervention order from a court is going to do sweet fuck all about stopping this person from finding and hurting you. That's it. And, and in fact, the intervention order, you know, court appearance was shitful because I've just left this man and now I've got to go and face him in court and who's going to believe who, you know, like, and I was so afraid that he was going to follow us to know where I'd gone. You know, I mean, there was all that side of it too. And nobody seemed to give a shit about that. And I remember we got to the car, I had my dad with me, was the only person I could trust to be with me to try and get through that situation. So I had him with me and it's funny because I'm, I'm breathing fast and I'm shaking now and, and I suppose I haven't told this part of the story for ages. Um, and, again, as a survivor, sometimes when we have these conversations, our body's going to still react. This is 18 years later, my body's still reacting and it's, it's important to be okay with that. It's, again, yeah. important to be able to feel that and let that happen and not work against it. So I'm just, if my voice gets shaky, that's all that is. I remember at lunchtime we were still maybe three off the list from going in to talk about our case with the judge and at least they'd allowed me to sit in a separate room because he was in the main room. I had to walk past him. At least he, yeah, I didn't have to sit there the whole time. But we got to lunchtime and I was beside myself and I said, Dad, I don't think I can go in the the room with him and be talking about what's happened in front of him, knowing that he's going to try and deny everything, you know. And I was in such a state that somebody from the court came up and said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not fucking okay. And, you know, I'd grown up with nobody swearing around me. And this man had the word fucking everything. Like he even said under fucking stand. Like, you know, this word was even put in between other words. Like he was creating words with it. And so it, for me to say to this woman who was trying to help me, no, I'm not fucking okay. I was like, oh, my God, this is how not okay I am. Yeah. And she suggested I went to the police station next door and that I tried to see if somebody could advocate for me to, to avoid me having to be in that situation. So we spent the whole hour and a half of that break 
speaking to a very lovely policeman who understood and empathised with my situation. Unfortunately, there wasn't anything legally that he could do in terms of that intervention order at that time. And this is going back 18 years ago. So I, I know that things are better now. They can always still be better again. Um, but, you know, this is very much in a, a different time where it was very rare to get people in the police force that really did understand and were able to say, look, I actually do emphasise with you, I do believe you, these are some things that I can do to help you. Unfortunately, he just couldn't help with that one thing that I needed. And so, yeah, I had to go into that courtroom and bare my soul in front of all these strangers and a judge to try and get this intervention order, which... It's just a piece of paper. I didn't know if he was going to follow it or not. You know, I was like, yeah, now what? Now is he going to follow us back home? Is he, you know, like, yeah, there's just so much in that. So hard. Absolutely. And it's terrifying. And I know, I think I believe in the state of Victoria, at least now with domestic abuse, they are separated. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're not both going to the same place. Right. And it is re-traumatising and to a degree, putting yourself in more danger, but you know that you have to do this in order because there's going to be custody. You know that you've got a fight ahead of you as well. You've left now, but it's not over. It's just begun in a, in a lot of ways, I would imagine as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's right. That's the other thing. I mean, I, once I got out of the initial I've left, then it was like, okay, we have to stay hidden. So essentially in my head, I was on the run for 18 years. You know, I moved house once every year for seven years until I moved to a rural town where there were no links or ties to where we'd ever been before that I finally started feeling sort of safe. I was still looking over my shoulder. You know, it took a long time for that to happen. Um, There were just, yeah, there was so many parts of that journey. Um, I had started to reach out to domestic violence support groups because at that court hearing I heard the word domestic violence. I'd never heard it before. You know, I started hearing, oh, that's sexual assault. Okay, well, I know that that word is a crime. So, you know, who do I go to speak to to get more information about this? Because I'm still really confused and traumatised and in survival mode, you know, and I still don't know shit about sex because I've had this perpetrator teach me everything that is not normal you know so there was all that going on and through my support group I was encouraged to go and give my statements for all the sexual assaults to the police I'm really really glad I got that opportunity but it was really difficult to be dealing with that on top of everything else that was going on you know so Yeah, very overwhelming time. There's an awful lot to have to try and deal with. And then, you know, then you've got to keep a roof over your child and yourself's head. And, you know, I mean, yeah, there's just a a whole shitball of stuff in there. But you get through. The, The thing is, we are, as people, we are amazingly resilient and we survived. Other people have not been that fortunate. And I'm well aware of that. And, Again, I don't compare my journey to other people's, but I am well aware that there there is still, I think, one death a week from domestic violence. They're the current figures. It's devastating. 
It is absolutely. And I think, you know, it goes to show your awareness of your situation as well. And you've been in this domestic abuse relationship for so long. You have been managing the threat level for so long. You knew that this was escalating and it goes to show your knowledge and awareness in that moment that you knew enough to know that you were in so such danger and so was your child. And I think that that's those you've risk assessed yourself. You've been risk assessing the whole time and you knew that this was the time to leave because of that. And I think it just goes to show how much you knew it was happening in that moment, as much as it must have felt out of control, you knew on some level your gut was telling you this is it's now or never. Yeah, that's it. And and one thing that trauma does give you the opportunity for is learning that your gut gives you really good information. <laughs> it, <laughs> it is like a warning sign, you know, and it's like, oh and, and one of one of the um people that was helping, she was actually the art therapist that was running the first domestic violence support group that I had so much benefit from. And I remember her saying, because the discussion had come around IBS and it was like every single woman in that room had irritable bowel syndrome. And she said, it's not IBS girls. Let's just be real here. It's because you've gone through something really shitty and it's literally making you shit (laughs) because your body's trying to shit it out. And I was like, oh. (laughs) And I think all of us in that room just went, very crude way of saying it, but you're right. Yes. You're right. You know, this is what happens. And so those nausea feelings and the, oh, my God, I'm getting cramping in here and, oh, I just, oh, you know, where's the toilet? I mean, it's all related. It's a body going, this is not right. This yeah. is not it, right. It goes back to what I was saying before as well about our physiological responses during hypervigilance. When you're in those yeah. stages, your blood is not going to your organs because they don't need your organs to run away from this situation. Your blood is going to your extremities to flee or fight the situation. So imagine your body is going through that. Everybody else's stomachs and intestines are being consistently got blood flow going to them. They're working normally. Yours three or four times a day have long periods of time where they are not being given the blood that they need so it all comes back in and maybe your intestines are trying to do the job quicker or something because the, it knows. And I think yeah. physiologically it makes sense. There's something happening because of this response and it does make sense. Mm. And it, it's so funny almost that you say that because it's so mm. true. Like I have such, I've got, I have to do FODMAP and I've always had problems yeah. since my assault, not before. Yeah. And you're so many of us have tummy troubles. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, this is something people don't talk about, having the shits, like literally. But it's like, yeah, okay, it makes sense. I've got the shits about everything that's happening. Um, Literally my body's trying to get rid of it. And like you said, you know, there's all that other stuff that could very plausibly explain why, but this is it, you know. I mean, I I discovered using FODMAP helped me as well, but so too did reducing the anxiety and, you know, all these different things. Um. Yeah, it's again, it's one of those things that doesn't get spoken about enough. And why? You know, wh- where is the shame around talking about toilet habits when everybody in the world has to do it? You know, this is the way the body functions. Absolutely. 
It's one of yeah. those age-old misogyny patriarchy questions. I think more than anything, it's more shameful because we're ladies and it's been ingrained mm. into us that we have to be and it's not ladylike to talk about these things. Well, mm. fuck you and your patriarchy. Yeah. We will talk about yeah. everything. Thank you very much. That's it. And, and really at the end of the day, and again, this is another part of my realisation and stripping back the layers and, you know, really discovering what actually matters in life to me and what is important, at the end of the day, when you compare the brutal rapes and all of the abuse and everything, talking about diarrhea is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it really isn't. Yeah. Um, and so they're the sort of times where comparison is helpful. It's like, Absolutely. well, you know what, it's, it's actually it's not a big deal. So just spit it out, say it, and then everyone else in the room goes, Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I've got that too. And, you know, and there the conversation goes because yeah. so often I found that because I am the person that eventually, once I find my voice, I'll eventually speak up. When I do speak up, and I speak up all the time now, you can't stop me. But when I do speak up, it's giving permission to other people to say, oh, you too, even if yeah. that's all they say you too, they're then acknowledging out loud that they've gone through that as well. Absolutely. I think going back to what you were talking about before, especially the abuse done to your dog as well, the hard thing for a lot of people is listening to that and listening to the fact that an animal was harmed. And one thing that gets me that I try and call people out on all the time is if that upsets you more than what you're listening to in regards to the person you really need to have a really good solid think about it because it's normalized so much in our society that we care more when it happens to an animal than when it happens to a human. And I know that that's hard to grapple with. The thought of anybody harming my dog breaks my soul in half, but you need to be, we need to be more sympathetic and empathetic towards humans as well. And understanding how much of that damaged you to, um, being like seeing your animal go through that as well and how hard that was like it's oh yeah I mean it was it was devastating and yeah it was one of the things that I probably personally struggled with the most throughout everything because every time I looked at that gorgeous dog who just adored me yeah just like adored me and was terrified of that man and I couldn't do a damn thing about it. That that was what cut me so much with that whole situation. Then when my child came, it was like, okay, I have to protect my child. I'm trying to protect the dog too. I'm doing whatever I can here. You just can't do it all. And sometimes you can't do any of it, you know, yeah. like because of the whole situation. But yeah, it's it's a it's 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 an environment that defies logic a lot of the time and I think that that's a really important realization to come to and I only came to that realization many years later looking back on the pattern of behaviors and and all the different types of control I mean even to the point where he had named his penis he had named my breasts um, you know like he had named my vagina all sorts of horrible names this was again it was all just part of the systematic approach of i mean nothing i'm not worthy i am 
there simply for whatever he needs and I don't even count enough to be myself anymore. I am these things that he's named, you know, like. And so there's so much within that. And and I think that when you get to that point where logic no longer applies to the environment you're in, that's where the most dangerous personally, the most dangerous um, situations occur because that's where you stop understanding who you are and that you can leave. And, yes, it's scary and, yes, there's all this stuff that could happen, but what's the alternative, you know? Absolutely. And if you can seek help and get a, get a plan in preparation for leaving, like you had a plan there ready to go, ready to action. Mm. Um, and I think it's important that people seek help where possible to create a plan before they leave as well to support yeah. them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, I think too, if you suspect that something is happening to someone, like I, I found out after all the police investigation had been going on and stuff for the sexual assault side of it, I had at one point this amazing detective on my case and he'd gone around and interviewed a lot of the neighbours and one of the neighbours had told him a story about how he used to go and ask for sugar all the time but he was actually just checking in on me to make sure I was still alive and, you know. Oh, wow. The thing was, I know, and I just bawled when the guy told me this because I didn't know. But the thing was, I was like, Yes, I remember he was lovely. He was always coming over and I kept saying, how do you eat so much sugar? (laughs) (laughs) But he, you know, he created the opportunity, but I didn't pick up on that subtlety, a bit like the nurse not picking up on my subtlety for what I couldn't say. Perhaps this guy didn't know how to broach that subject. And so one of the things that I always like to talk about is, what can you say to someone who you think might be in a situation that they need to get out of, that they're struggling, that this may be happening? And this guy had told the detective, you know, he used to hear all this abuse and things banging and every time he thought, you know, or was she being hit and all this stuff. And I was like, after I got over the, oh, my God, that's so sweet and lovely, I was like, well, why the fuck didn't he say anything? Like, yeah. I probably would have actually said something to him, you know, because yeah. he only ever came when, when my husband had gone. Why didn't he, he never call the came police? when the husband was there? Yeah, why didn't he call the police to intervene? So I was like, oh, okay, really sweet on one side. And on the other side, I was like, geez, massive opportunity missed there. So it, it's, it's words like, um, or even having like some sort of sign or something, you know, like, oh, is there anything going on that you want to talk about or are you feeling safe right now or are you allowed to leave the house on your own? I mean, even that question on its own can be an indicator if they say, oh, don't answer or look away from you or hesitate or go, no, I'm not allowed to leave the house. Okay, well, there's probably something going on here that, you know, and not to make assumptions, but to try and use that opportunity to start some dialogue and also to understand that even if you create that opportunity for dialogue, some people may not engage in that dialogue straight away because there's massive trust issues here, yeah. you know, and there's shame and there's all these other things going on too. So it's about just trying to let them know you're here, you care about them. And if they ever want to talk, you you can do that. Or if they would, you know, 
like to get some information about people that may be able to help, for example, social workers, you know, people that are in the domestic violence space that help get people out. Um, there are many different ways that you can try and edge into that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I will say is as well, on average it takes a woman seven times to leave for a number of different situations and reasons that you've spoken about, you know, the threat of suicide, things like that. You've tried to leave, you end up going back and it's not, you know, it happens and it might be that the person misses the their partner might be a lot of different reasons. Mm. One of the key ways that a perpetrator can control their partner is by isolating them. And mm. I've seen so many times friends get so frustrated when their other friend has not left. And I think that's one thing I would call out and say, it's your job as a friend to support them, but know that it might take them 10 times to leave. And as frustrating and as heartbreaking and as hard as that is for you, if they're acting out against you, if they're being mean to you, if they're whatever, if they're trying to push you away, maybe for different types of reasons, make sure that they still know that you are there for them no matter what, because that is a way and a tactic that this perpetrator will do and use against your friend. And no matter how long it takes them to leave, you need to make sure that they know that you're still there. You might not call yeah. them every day. You might not call them every week. You might have lost a little bit of love for them in the time being because they've hurt you too. But you need to make sure that this person that you care about knows that you were there because they need to know that they have somewhere to go when they do want to leave or when they want yeah. to finally leave for good. Yeah, and not only somewhere to go, people who are showing the way with love and kindness and compassion and even if they don't understand with empathy and not going straight into the judgmental side of things because that, again, is one of the reasons some people won't share when they're in that situation. They won't volunteer that information because they're so scared of being judged. And so it's really important too, I think, that those words no judgment here is is actually really important. Do you have any advice for somebody going through something similar to you um, right now? Like if they're going through it right now, if they've just left or if anything like that, what would your advice to somebody be? Yeah, I think to really be observing what's going on. If you're in the space where you don't feel like you can do anything about it, start observing, start taking mental notes of things, start looking to try and put together the patterns of behaviour with an understanding that if you start seeing these patterns of behaviour and you know that it's not right, it doesn't feel right, listen to that gut, you know, work out ways to try and reach out for help. And I'm talking about professional help here. It's not going to cost you money. And this is one of the things, again, that people often don't understand. I've got no money. Quite often the financial abuse goes along with all of this too, and I certainly experienced that as well. And so for me it was a massive stress to think, well, financially what's going to happen here? And what I discovered was that once I did reach out for local organisations for help that could provide counsellors free of charge, 
that could provide suggestions for housing and link me in with other organisations that could provide a lot of um, support for helping us to get food on the table, you know, and, and pay a telephone bill, for example, or help work out a payment plan and a budget for something and, and paying off debts, all of these things, there are people out there that that is their job to help people like you. Yeah. And as hard as it is to say something, if you can try and work out a way to contact somebody to at least say those words or write about what's happening to somehow communicate to somebody and sometimes it's better if it's a stranger that is in a support area because it feels less personal that way just reach out that's the most important thing reach out to somebody to share what's going on because once you do that then the help will come Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, I've really appreciated this chat. It's been very full on, but it's it's really been insightful and wonderful. And, you know, it's a testament to you and your strength as well, um, that you're not only doing this for yourself, but you're actively putting this into use for other people to inspire, support and, and reduce the stigma around this topic specifically for so many people. Um, so do you mind telling us quickly a little bit more about your podcast and, and where can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest way to get in touch with me is through my website, which is whymemovement.com, based on the Why Me Movement, which is behind the Why Me with Vera Lee podcast. And I actually have two podcasts. So there's also the What the Flab podcast. Because another thing that happens through trauma and and these situations is a lot of women struggle with weight gain and a traumatised body doesn't release weight very well. And so I talk a lot about ways of helping yourself through that process without focusing specifically on food because a lot of the time it's not actually about food. And so with the Why Me with Vera Lee podcast, I get people on to share their stories about the adversities that they've gone through. And we focus on those Why Me moments where they've said, why is this happening to me? And I think anyone who's gone through adversity has had one of those moments. So we talk about those Why Me moments. They're often very deep and meaningful and intimate moments that people share very often for the first time on the podcast. And I know a lot of your guests are sharing their stories for the first time too. And to be able to hold that space is a really sacred thing and something that I don't take lightly. And so what we then focus on is what they did about that. What was their personal journey? What made them turn around the thinking of why is this happening to me and feeling like a victim? How did they turn that around to start declaring this is why this happened to me. These are the opportunities that I've learned through that adversity. This is the resilience I've learned how to develop. These are the skills that I've gained that I would never have experienced or been forced into had I not had those experiences. And so by sharing those stories, we aim to inspire, connect and empower our audience. And so that is the main focus of that podcast. And then in, a, in addition to that, I offer my services to help people through working through adversity as well. Absolutely. And I think it's just such an incredible, incredible thing that you're doing and that you've been able to do for so many. And I'm so thankful and grateful to be connected to you and to 
connected to so many other survivors. We're creating a community that is just so formidable and wonderful and um, it's so wonderful to be a part of it in so many ways. And I, I just want to say thank you again and thank you for coming on and sharing your story with all of us today. Thank you so much, Maddie. And and I want to parrot back a little bit of that to you because I thank you for everything you're doing as well. And we certainly have connected over this passion for what we're doing. And some of your audience may not be aware, podcasting takes up a lot of time. It's very resource hungry. Um, There's an awful lot that we put into it, not to mention the emotional impact on us as the host. You know, when you're hearing and sharing these moments with people, it's really taxing. And that we do that because we want to, because we understand the bigger purpose of what we're doing. We have a passion for helping others. And we know that sharing these stories may just help somebody or many somebodies out there who have either gone through the same thing and are ready to go through that healing portion of their journey or who are going through it right now or know somebody who's going through it, that it can help them start to open that conversation. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I think from both of us, we see you, we hear you, we believe you. Um, and we're sending out so much love to everybody after this. Um, make sure you're practicing some self-care. Make sure you're looking after yourselves. Um, if you can, please jump onto Apple Podcasts, rate and review my podcast. Please go on it if you're if you're able to go and jump on the Why Me with Vera Lee podcast as well and the What the Flab po- podcast. Rate and review. It helps us so much. Um, and as, as Vera Lee just said, it is, it is a lot of work that we go through and we put in, but um, it's obviously worth it. So thank you so much. For now, (laughs) this is Reclaim Me signing out. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.